Welcome back to the Disaster Tough Podcast. I'm your host, John Scardina. Several months ago, I was at the National USAR Conference down in Orlando, Florida. I brought uh, Prescott Natto with me. He's the host of Life Fire Layout. I brought Zach Force with me. He's the host of EM Weekly. And we just had a blast. So big shout out to the National USAR Conference for allowing us to go down there to present, to meet incredible people. In fact, one of the most incredible people that I met down there was David Ronson. He is the CEO. He is like the the top dog, the head honcho, all cool things over at Estella. The reason why he stood out so much to me is because of his career path. He was on the public side. He was a firefighter, incident commander, the whole deal. And he switched over to becoming this head of Acela. And they have all these different products. A couple weeks ago, one of those products, I talked about it, a Paladin. And you might have heard them because I've endorsed them on my podcast. I talked about the VA reaching out to them, doing incredible things during COVID. They're really great innovators over there, uh, over with Paladin and with Acela. And it's a, really honestly a huge honor to have David come on here and talk to me about his thoughts. And so without any further ado, I'd like to have David come on the show. David, welcome to the Disaster Tough Podcast. John, an honor to be here. Thanks very much. It's good to see you again. Honestly, like the the weather's a little more bleak now, but, um, you know, I'll take a Florida visit any day with you. I'll be there with you. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. So uh, I kind of queued it up, right? So you were a firefighter. You were, you were an incident commander. You were doing those kind of things. And then you switched over to the private sector. Before we get into like all the amazing things you're doing now and, you know, all the reasons why we were impressed with you when we met you guys down there and seeing your products firsthand, tell us about your story. Like, how did you, like, why a firefighter? Why move over to the private sector? What was your thought process during that uh, time period? Well, I was very young. I think I was 19 or 20 years old, and I definitely wanted to become a firefighter. I, I was torn between wildland firefighting and structure firefighting, and I learned about what is now CAL FIRE. I have a hard time saying CAL FIRE. It was, it was California Department of Forestry. I was CDF guy. Uh, and so I was living in Colorado and, and thought, hey, I want to go to California and be a firefighter. Uh, I moved to California and found out at, you know, before the age of the internet, uh, that there were 7,000 applicants for every position that was open with, with California. Oh. And, um, I, uh, figured out a, a, a trick, if you will, uh, to get to the front of the line. And that was, uh, CDF ran several paid volunteer stations. And so, um, as a volunteer, they put me through basic fire school, uh, same as uh, a career firefighter. Uh, I became a paid volunteer and ultimately started my probationary period. Long story short, uh, back in the late 80s, affirmative action was not kind to me. Mm -hmm. um, and I was basically put to the back of the line again. And so I really started thinking about what, what I you know, what I wanted to do, what career path I wanted to take. So, um, I got out of firefighting for just a couple of years. I moved to Montana, uh, and I learned about, uh, uh, contracting, fire contracting. And so I went to our forests contracting officer and I said, Hey, uh, what if I could build you the best, you know, fleet of fire trucks and the best trained firefighters, uh, that you have available to you and he loved it. So we entered into an agreement. 
Um, over the course of about, I don't know, 10 years, we grew that company. We were one of, if not the largest fire contractors in the, in the engine and tender business. So we never contracted hand crews or, or anything like that. Um, and it was, it was a great ride. Uh, you know, at our high point, I think we had over a hundred employees. Uh, we signed contracts with all five major land management agencies in the U S we started oh. getting contracts with different States with FEMA. And we really became an all hazard company over the course of time. So we were responding to, um, the states of Florida and Louisiana in response to hurricanes. We were fighting fire year round. Um, it allowed me personally uh, to go out as what's called an AD. I was administratively determined by the federal government uh, mm -hmm. to be a temporary federal employee. And I rose the ranks to type three incident commander. Uh, so I would go out as an IC or um, division soup, um, you know, Basically, I, I I like to be the the highest in command on the line. Uh, yeah, I like many that. times as as my operations section chiefs tried to drag me back into that tent at the ICP, yeah. I just I couldn't do it. <laughs> Real quick, we're gonna pause for this week's disaster tough endorsements. The L3 Harris Extreme 400P radio solves problems and is specifically designed for emergency services. How do we know? We field tested it with medical, urban search and rescue, and collapsed in confined structures. This radio is amazingly tough. Check out the L3 Harris Extreme 400P radio at L3Harris.com right now. How do you spell Doberman Emergency Management? EOP, OEP, HVA, HMP, Thyra, TTX, Drone, PDA. Whenever you need an expert, Doberman Emergency Management field experts are there for support. Contact an expert at DobermanEMG.com today. If you served in the military, you've probably worn Proper Apparel. Proper Apparel is now reaching out to first responders and those who love the outdoors. Check out Proper Apparel from the outdoors to the EOC, wear proper. Okay, let's jump back in. The, uh, there was this multi-year argument I had with my team lead where every single disaster, I try to become a div soup. I thought that was like the best job in the world. I just wanted to get out there. I, I, I agree. I, I wanted to be like the top guy at the tactical level, but unfortunately in a weird way, I was very good at one job and he didn't want me to be in another job. And I was in a, an environment where they didn't want to risk that. And so I was always very jealous of the div soups. And so if you were a div soup or if you were an IC at the, you know, the tactical level, very jealous of that history. So if you're doing that, if you're already in that contracting space, as far as I know, Acela has, I want to say drastically changed from that, but it does a lot more than that. I mean, not only are you in the current spaces that you're talking about, but you've also been in mining, uh, the, you have these what I call mobile morgues or por portable morgues, which I thought was kind of really incredible the way you guys approached it. But from like that perspective, how do you take it from like this firefighter at heart, this like tactician at heart to like move out of that more into like the private sector roles? Was that a, was that a difficult transition for you or were you like, I'm emotionally, I'm done. I, I, it's time to like have a normal life, quote unquote, like what was, you know, what were your thought processes during those changes? Well, I think my background is very unique in that I was kind of forced 
to take on an entrepreneurial role while I was fighting a fire, right? I got mm. booted from the fire service, uh, not booted. I, I was just told that, you know, promotions were not coming my way for a very long time. It didn't make sense for me to stay where I was. Um, yeah. I certainly had the opportunity with the training background and with the experience that I had with, with CDF to get another job. Um, I just saw a new opportunity and and jumped right in. My dad was a serial entrepreneur. I think I got it from, you know, a lot of it from him, mm. uh, unbeknownst to me at the time. Uh, <laughs> but it is funny now, you know, 40 years later, 30 years later, to see how many footsteps I actually followed in there. Mm. Um, but serving um, my country, serving firefighters, serving first responders was always at the forefront of what I wanted to be doing. One of, the, one of the unique things about Bridger Fire, which was the, the contracting company, is we realized quickly that, you know, the, the quality of firefighters that we were bringing on was was just extraordinarily high caliber. We expected mm. a lot more than a typical wildland firefighting agency. And after, I think, just maybe year two, we realized, wow, you know, we have all of these people with all of these talents. Why are we letting them, letting them go every winter? Uh, and we started building our firefighting apparatus in-house. Uh, and it was some of the best out there. So we would spend our summers fighting fire and our winters building fire trucks. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, a secondary uh, revenue source of the company became going out on wildfires all summer with these trucks that were purpose-built for, you know, fighting wildland firefighter for weeks and months at a time away from your station. Um, and fighting fire side by side with fire departments that were looking for these types of rigs. So every two, three, four years, depending on the rigs, we would sell the fire trucks. We had a list yeah. of fire departments that wanted to buy these fire trucks from us. So what a genius sales approach. <laughs> I mean, not only are you making money by doing the contract, but you're like literally rolling up in quote unquote the Mercedes Benz of, you know, you know, it's like Somebody has a bicycle, you're rolling up on a, you know, you know, hot engine. That's pretty awesome. That's a good, I mean, it's a good approach, but you're also doing the job. That's kind of, you know, a win-win for sure. It worked out very well. And then more and more departments came to us and said, hey, would you build us a truck? And so oh. uh, that's really where I cut my teeth in manufacturing and, and building fire trucks. We did that for years um, mm -hmm. until wildland fire trucks kind of became a commodity, I'd say, in the you know, early two thousands. And then it was a race to the, you know, to the, to the bottom with the cheapest truck. And that's, that's not my style at all. And so we morphed, we stopped fighting fire for a number of different reasons, mostly because we got so much work. We were just grinding our people, uh, with 12 months, you know, a year of, of, uh, mm. of being away from home and, you know, guys are, and gals are maturing and they want to, you know, spend time with families and grow families. So we really morphed it into uh, a commercial vehicle manufacturing company. We um, specialized in, this is kind of post 9-11 when mobile command centers were you know, the biggest thing. Uh, everybody had to have a mobile command center. So we started building mobile command centers, bookmobiles, mobile x-ray trucks, uh, mobile health clinics, um, you know, anything in the, the specialty vehicle market and really garnered that skill set, became, uh, you know, very, very high quality. Um, that then morphed into building buses. Uh, we built, I think, 500 
Sprinter buses from shitty centers. And, um, and then about eight years ago, in fact, I think it was eight years ago, January 1st, uh, we started Acela. And Acela builds high mobility vehicles, tactical vehicles, um, primarily for, you, you hit, hit some of them uh, earlier, uh, fire departments and police departments that do eye water flood rescue, mm. uh, wildland fire trucks. Um, we do a lot in the mining space, oil and gas, that sort of thing. Yeah, you know what's fascinating to me is like, you know, in the public sector, and this really is more of like a slant on EM companies, and I, I don't I don't mean to do that too much. However, there's a lot of companies that I like, you know, quote unquote bottom of the barrel. And when I got into like EM contracting, I thought I was like, you know, a rare breed when it came to like being mission focused as a company. Like, oh, you know, serving my country, wanted to do things right the way, like creating this good stuff. And what's been fun is to meet other people like yourself in other industries who have that background in that public side. And so they can absolutely understand from a, like a very intimate or um, like emotional level, like why this stuff has to be great. And, uh, you know, quite frankly, it was very impressive in the national hurricane or the national USAR conference to go out there and see your high water truck. And that was cool enough. You know, I'm not a firefighter, so I like to, you know, press buttons and see things. Um, but the other two guys I brought with me are firefighters. And they, you know, were basically drooling over it. And they thought it was great stuff. And then we started talking about Paladin. And as an emergency manager and dealing with mass casualty incidents and, you know, the formal national strike team, that kind of stuff, getting out there and seeing the scale of what large-scale disasters can really do, especially, like, if something like New Madrid hit or, you know, earthquake on the West Coast, there has to be better systems in place to take care of uh, deceased persons, deceased family members, right, in, in this process. And COVID, I think COVID gets, uh, let us see, like, what would that be like on a very light version? But it'll only be expansive if something big happened. Um, and, you know, for the sake of maybe talking too long, but the counterterrorism training that we do, you know, there are several thousand dead in that scenario. What do you do with all those people? How do you do that in a dignified way? And if a cell is only eight years old, then Paladin, I'm guessing, started in COVID. And so you're only within a couple of years, and yet you're you're just knocking it out. As you've moved into these different areas, again, my focus is kind of on the Paladin side because I deal with more of the Paladin stuff. But every product you've come up with so far as you've somehow figured out how to keep it within mission and provide a good product. A lot of people, um, unfortunately, I've seen uh, their integrity start to become a little more gray in that space. How do you, have you made sure that you or your product actually you know, accomplish the mission and you can be sustainable as a company? Is that a good, I don't know. It's got a long-winded question, but. No, it's a very, it's a very good question. It's one that's, uh, really near and dear to my heart. So at the end of the day, I'm a designer. I mean, the, the part of building these companies and the products that we've, um, you know, put out into the wild, uh, I've designed almost all of them or, you know, I mean, certainly I rely on bringing engineers in that are smarter than me to design parts of them and, and things like that. But, um, at the end of the day, they're, they're mostly my 
brainchild. And that's really what gets me up in the morning. It's not running the company. It's not, um, you know, the accounting or the finance or, or right. any of that. It's the relationships with primarily yeah. the end users, not even the agencies usually. And unfortunately yeah. for the end users, typically the bigger the agency, the more the agency is their own roadblock to getting what they need or, right? Uh, you know, you've got politics, you've got budgets, you've got all of those things that, um, that have to be taken into account before before that firefighter or first responder actually gets this piece of equipment, whether it's a truck or a moored trailer or whatever the case may be. So um, regardless of the size of the agency and how much experience we might bring to the table and they're saying, hey, we want something that does this, and we're saying, well, you don't want to do it that way because that breaks but we can do it another way that might be cheaper mm. and you know, we have a lot of experience with it and it'll last a lot longer. And so that, you know, the Paladin story certainly I think tells, um, you know, part of that story as well, like how, how we brought a better product or a number of better products to market uh, mm. in order to address the actual problem at the ground level. Hey, we're going to do a quick pause X to thank our sponsors, L3 Harris, Proper Apparel, Impulse, Doberman Emergency Management, and all those subscribers who reach out to us and give us a donation to help us keep us going. Let's jump back in. So we've been teasing this Paladin thing for a little while now because I brought it up on other podcasts. Uh, let me give it context for those in emergency management or otherwise who are listening and say, okay, how does this apply to me before we get into that story? I'm going to share... Uh, a very similar story, but that would match perfectly on the public side of what David just shared. So during the wildfires of 2017, I was on the national strike team, national IMAT West, went over to Cal OES. There was a FEMA region nine team there. Um, Bob Fenton was the team lead FCO. And I didn't know Bob and I'm also on national IMAT while his team is operating. I'm the only national person there. And somebody comes up and says, Bob wants to see X. Oh, uh, you know, I was a GIS guy. Bob wants to see X. Okay, made it. Send it to him. Comes back. Bob doesn't like that. That's not what he wanted. Okay, what does he want? Okay, this is what he wants. Made it again. It happened like two or three times. I finally got annoyed and I just walked up to him and said, what do you want? And he tells me, I said, no, what do you want to know? And he was like, this is what I want to know. I said, give me five minutes. And I went down, made it. I said, this is what you actually want. It's like, oh yeah, that's what I meant the whole time. And it was, uh, it's like that. So when you're talking to, when David's talking about talking to clients, because of that background and experience of actually doing the job, he can understand, hey, this is what you really need. There's a very tactical way to do that. You still have to work with your clients. Your client could be your boss if you're in the public sector, your chief, whomever. But learning that skill set of, how to approach things that, you know, don't just be a yes man, but figure out how to, how to get to the right solution with that person is an incredible skill to have. So with that kind of understanding in place, let's talk about VA, COVID, and Paladin. So you were doing the trucks and then COVID happened and I'll just let you take it from there, David. Um, yeah, let me, let me get, I think it was March. 2000 <laughs> um and uh and you know the, the, the sky started to fall 
one of the trucks, I don't know if I mentioned it, one of the main trucks that we build are flood rescue trucks. We've kind of become the, the de facto flood rescue truck in, in North America because uh, our trucks can forward about 50 inches of water. So one of our clients is the Veterans Administration. They use our trucks to evacuate hospitals in flood pro regions. Um, so we worked with the uh, Office of Emergency Management. So that's the nationwide emergency management office. It's not a regional office. And uh, developed a very, very good rapport with them. Uh, you know, the sense that we got from them is most of their vendors are just looking to make a quick buck and, and get out. Um, and we really work with them to design their trucks and, you know, deliver good quality and all that kind of stuff. So we had really stellar relationships with them. Um, literally two weeks into, you know, the, the, the beginning of COVID, uh, we had vendor after vendor after vendor calling us and saying, Hey, we're, we're shuttering our plant. We're shutting down. Um, and, you know, to be honest, I, I was in panic mode. I did not know if we were going to survive if we had to shut our production line down for, uh, you know, an unforeseeable amount of time. And um, Louise, you met Louise, who's our director of sales and marketing. Came Big shout office. out to her. She's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Louise walked in my office and she said, hey, don't, don't say no. Just hear me out. Would you be willing to build some morgue trailers for the VA. And I looked at her and I said, what's a morgue trailer? <laughs> and I literally got on my computer and Googled morgue trailer and clicked images. And unbeknownst to Louise, I used to build refrigerated vans, um, right? That was one of the product groups that we built years ago. And immediately I recognized all of the equipment. I mean, basically they're doing in a trailer what we did in vans. And I said, Absolutely. How, how many do they want and how quickly do they need them? Um, we were working through a third party uh, GSA contract holder. And so back to, to your original comment, um, we didn't like the spec. Uh, it, 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 and there is an art to steer, trying to steer your client to do the right thing. Um, and it's for me and for Sela. Uh, and my other companies, it's not an art to talk them into spending more money and putting more of their money in your pocket. It's really about who's going to be using this and and yeah. how do you how do you keep it simple? How do you make it easier, um, more reliable? You know all of those sorts of things. And uh, the VA dusted off some contract for a board trailer that they had purchased a, one trailer for one hospital, I think a year or two before, and they said, no, this is what we want. And so we shuttered our entire production floor in a matter of about 36 hours. Everything on the floor was moved into a storage area and we retooled um, to build more trailers. And, and mm -hmm. I think the contract was, I think the original contract was for 56 trailers and we delivered 46 of them in 35 days. That's nuts. Uh, and these trailers are basically, they're, they're, I can't remember their size. I think they were 17 feet long uh, by eight feet wide by about seven feet tall. And it's four inches of insulation. Uh, and it's got racks for cadaver trees inside and a very robust refrigeration system. So 
we were able to reach out to all of these different vendors and everybody. I mean, the stars kind of aligned. Everybody really stood behind us and, and we were able to finance the whole deal immediately. You can imagine how many, um, you know, how many millions of dollars it took to, to put that together. And, um, and they were thrilled with them. To be honest, the only problems they had is with the equipment that we tried to talk them out of, <laughs> out of using <laughs> with less funny. expensive equipment. Um, but yeah, so that was a real success for them. And in the process of doing that, uh, we took a deep dive to see, well, what is this industry? I mean, it's never been on any of our radar. We've never heard of it. Um, and there were really only two mom and pops that were doing it. The entire market may have been, may have been 10 trailers a year, uh, which is why there was only two mom and pops doing it. And yeah. The demand obviously skyrocketed, and and we saw an opportunity to, um, you know, to service emergency managers and coroners and medical examiners and, and hospitals around the country, and huh. really became subject matter experts on what are the real issues, right? Uh, why are these there are all these problems in, um, you know, in that chain, and um, and how do we solve them? Because a trailer might not be the perfect solution. It, and in most cases, it actually is not the perfect solution, but uh, there was nothing else on, on the market. So we leveraged that VA opportunity to really service um, hundreds and hundreds of, of more clients. Um, we probably shipped um, in the form of services. We, we set up a leasing program. Uh, in sales, we've probably shipped product to over 40 states. Well, wow. uh, that's continued to this day, even and just days. just within a couple of years. I mean, you're talking about a major overhaul in a, in a new industry taking on this big thing based off of uh, essentially trusting your staff, by the way. Another lesson learned. There's lots of lessons learned that you're just like naturally providing. You know, with the Paladin thing. When I talked to Luis specifically at uh, the National USAR Conference, and now Anna, by the way, she big shout out to her. She's pretty incredible herself. Um, and as my team is, uh, has talked about it, you know, everybody over here has also done it. I talked about Prescott and Zach, but there's other people like Jake who works at AMR, who's also been on the podcast. You know, I don't think there's any um, naive. Nativity, naivety. I don't know how to say that. Uh, I, I don't think people are naive in the in the fact that things can go bad very quickly on a very large scale. There's so many systems that could provide cascading impacts. And what is fascinating to me as we started researching this since you know November really is, hey, we we know mass casualty incidents happen. We know that systems get overwhelmed. Why isn't this a thing? And what has most been bewildering is the people that I would thought would have known the most like, oh yeah, I just never thought about it before. You're like, really? And then like, once you talk to them about it, they're like, yeah, actually that's a pretty good idea. You're like, yeah, who knew? You know, like if you're on, like every major city on the West coast because of the earthquake should, should uh, have trailers. Like every, every, like any major city really in the U S mass casualty incidents. Uh, I've had Brian Davis on here. He's an incident commander at the Pulse nightclub shooting. You know, uh, we've had people um, coming here talk about Las Vegas shooting. It doesn't need to be the earthquake. It, but if you're in a system where things can get overwhelmed very quickly, 
I'm at the point where I'm, I want to say extreme. That's probably not the right word, but it's like, are we getting into negligence by not having these things in place so that we can move forward very quickly? If you're in a large city or you're a metropolis or you're dealing with a, a large scale incidence by trade, and you're not thinking about the recovery process. And for me, uh, once, you know, once you have victims, now you're in recovery, at least the way I think about it. Um, and you're not thinking about how to store the remains. Uh oh, you have a big problem, and uh, people are going to to address that. I think we we should go overcome that in 9/11. 9/11 was a perfect example of that, like mass casualty incidents, higher storing all these bodies, and yet here we are in 2024, still trying to figure it out. So, uh, worthwhile that you're able to figure it out. Amazing that you're listening to your staff, but for everybody listening in, like take note. Right. Like if you're in one of those places, you should probably start thinking about how are you doing your recovery process. Right. And lo and behold, I know a pretty cool guy that's on the podcast talking about how to overcome it. So, um, David, when you're talking to clients and we're, we're talking about like the, the tactics of how to persuade them into right things, if somebody's listening to the podcast right now and they're like, oh, shoot, like I just did a tabletop exercise for an MCI, we didn't even think about this. And now they're trying to think about it. What is your pitch from a mission perspective and from a business perspective to make sure people have like these trailers in-house? Well, it's, you know, one of the things we learned, um, <laughs> one of the things we learned and, and one of the things that was born from that experience is trailers are, are not, are usually not a, a great solution. Uh, trailers are big. Trailers require maintenance. Um, you know, if you park a trailer out be behind the medical examiner's office for for the next three years until you use it, um, there's a good chance it's not going to start or it's not going to work or the tires are going to blow out or, you know, whatever the case may be. So um, I think number one is we did a deep dive during and, and post-COVID, and we looked at as many states um, – uh, mass casualty plans as we can get a hold of. And one of the things we realized is the the number one <laughs> the number one phone call that each state has in its plan is to FEMA to activate their um, their DMORG team. DMORG, yeah. So uh, the reality is there are only three DMORG teams in the country. Each one has a single trailer and that trailer does not hold hold any bodies so that's right they actually don't bring the stuff in that no, wild they, they bring all the equipment that would be inside of a medical examiner's office so the x-ray mm. machines and tables and and uh, autopsy tools and that sort of thing um our federal government does not have the ability to store a single human body period fema doesn't have that that capability and fema is technically not even tasked with doing it it's really hhs um, under ESF eight or nine, I believe I, I forget what it is. I nine is SARS, so it's probably eight. Ah, I would uh, I typically know that off the top of my head, but it's medical, yeah. well, whatever the medical is. So, um, uh, you know, the answer to your question is the number one thing I would do is take a look at your state or your counties or your city's mass casualty plan and see how realistic it is, because we found um, well over ninety percent of them were were completely unrealistic. Um, and, and two is to come up with a plan for how you're going to execute. So, you know, you're talking about the trailers. We still build 
very high quality trailers. We still sell them, obviously at a much slower rate than we were during COVID. But COVID was a real wake up call to a lot of what we call the last responders. Um, that hey, we, you know, we do need to to do something. And there's um, a lot of agencies that have put in for grant money over the years, and they've been waiting for it, uh, or have just budgeted for it. So we continue to sell trailers, and trailers are a good solution for a lot of people, but they're a real horrible solution for a lot of others. And so the 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 solution that we came up with uh, is something that we call effectively the cube, um, and it is basically a, a soft sided portable morgue that takes up about I think it's like forty square feet when it's when it's packaged up, it's all on casters. The idea was a hospital, a medical examiner, a coroner's office can roll this thing into a closet when it's not in use. And it takes two people about 40 minutes to set up. Um, and you instantly have um, space for 12 bodies that could be cool, right? So there's there's a couple of, and it works very, very well. It's It's a really cool product. Um, and it doesn't come with a lot of the challenges that a trailer does, regardless of the size of the trailer. Um, and it uses essentially off-the-shelf um, refrigeration equipment. So, um, you know, the only moving parts, right, unlike a trailer which has axles and, uh, you know, hitches and lights and things like that, uh, the only moving parts are the refrigeration system. And we all know from our own homes how reliable a refrigeration system so uh, really cool product um, and a lot of people are switching over to that that is a product that can be stored in a warehouse uh, again at the federal or state level and deployed very very quickly in the aftermath of a transportation accident rail air, air whatever um, or can be deployed by a local corner when there's you know a head-on crash bus involved something like that um, or when a hospital just gets a search, whether it's overdoses or um, any sort of situation. What we learned through the process is, and of course, I, I, we knew nothing about this until we started listening, and we started listening in order to help solve the problem. What is the real problem? You know, The knee-jerk yeah. reaction was, we need refrigerated space. Well, why? I mean, uh, and, and the answer was, a typical hospital only has the capacity to hold two or four or six deceased persons. Um, they typically, in a typical environment, they will call the funeral home or the coroner or whoever is coming to get that body. And within six to 12 hours, somebody's coming to remove the body. Same thing at the coroners and, and the, the funeral homes. They have enough room and storage for X number of bodies. And so today the system works fine. You know, that river just kind of flows and, um, and it works out when you overwhelm that system, it's, it's, it gets overwhelmed at, at every single point. So it is at the hospital. It is at the coroner's office. It is at the funeral home. Um, and so now you've got multiple problems in the same, uh, chain, if you will. And so, um, having that surge capacity is is key, uh, and it doesn't have to be a nationwide or global level. It could be just a small incident can overwhelm uh, in the area. 
Yeah, the uh, you know I'm thinking about your comments about FEMA and DMORGs and uh, capabilities versus HHS. As a guy who worked under HHS through the technically through NIH um, and understanding those different processes, the the reality is that um, you know Craig Fugate bought like what was it like a hundred million body bags or something, and in working those systems, and um, I think your point. Um, ultimately, when we're talking about like different levels of government and who's who's in charge, is you know if you have a responsibility to respond to MCI incidents, whether it's you as the agency or working with the the morgues or the hospitals, whomever it is, you have a responsibility to start doing some EM guru stuff and do coordination and collaboration to make sure that they can get those assets like. Um, I became a big fan of not just the cube, but of, of Paladin really in your thought process, you know, a couple months ago, several months ago. Um, however, um, one of the big reasons why I want to do this podcast is because if people are planning out 2024 and beyond, they're looking at, you know, we're already thinking about hurricane season in the, in, in the summer and, and doing all the planning for that, that all happens now you're about to enter into her, you know, uh, tornado season. And um, unfortunately, we hear about active shooters in schools uh, weekly. Whatever like the situation is, my hope is that when people are listening to this podcast, um, they think more about um, the reunification of body to family member and uh, making sure that there's a dignified process in doing that. And uh, really, what you're talking about is not just storing the bodies, but making sure those bodies are stored in a dignified way and so that those families can process that. You don't uh, want over decay, you know, before they get the body. So, for example. So, uh, David, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and talking with me as an innovator, as a leader, as a CEO, as a designer, as you called out. You you wear many hats. For for those who are younger in the field, I have like 70% of my podcast you know, are within the first seven years of an EM career. And that could be they switch over a fire or from military or from degrees. But a huge number are listening to this right now and saying, okay, I want to do things right. Uh, from a leadership perspective, how do you make sure, well, what would be the advice that you give people to make sure that they're knocking it out of the park? My answer to that is learn. Read, watch, listen, ask. Um, if you're in an environment where you know, I, 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 fortunately for me, I've never been in this environment, but I, I still keep up reading a lot of the, you know, the firehouse magazines. Um, and I read more and more about these toxic environments, uh, where the younger generation isn't taught or isn't allowed to, to, uh, you know, to learn. And I would say if you're in one of those environments, move, you, you deserve, a, to have yourself protected and to, to work in a safe environment. But um, how satisfying is it to have a 20-year career and really understand what you're doing and and be able to give back and be able to share it? I, I love doing it. I loved, um, you know, helping people work through their task books and, and uh, taking on responsibility. Um, I was kind of known as a guy who um, arguably gave – too much responsibility. And, you know, in hindsight, I don't agree with that. I, I just wanted to challenge that person so that they can find their weak points so that they can address them. Uh, but I certainly enjoyed that. 
it's um that that learning thing the the humility it takes to keep learning i think uh everything in this world i you know everything is instant gratification on every single level and the the humility it takes to say uh i'm willing to be terrible at something for a little bit so that i can become better and the humility and the patience it takes from leaders to say, I'm going to allow you to be terrible for at this for a little bit. Uh, when it's not life-saving, it's great. Uh, when it's life-saving, you have to do things right, of course. But um, like on Blue Sky stuff, like let's work together. And, um, you know, that's that's kind of the, the message I can get behind as well. Um, by the way, I just thought of the title of our podcast episode. You ready for it? I'm keeping, ready. Keeping, keeping things cool with David Rossett. <laughs> keeping things cool in fact um i just figured out your new tagline for paladin you're welcome uh so we'll call it that david thank you so much for uh coming on the podcast for talking with me for sharing lessons learned obviously uh there's uh you know there's a reason why we're excited about what you guys are doing and that that dual concept of mission focused doing it right because you're on that one side but also in the private sector of you know filling a gap um, it's a special thing and it's, um, obviously an opportunity to have you on the podcast. So thanks again for coming. Thank you for having me and thanks for doing what you do. Sure. So, uh, I try to be semi-cool like, uh, David, David is very cool. I'm semi-cool. If you want to keep it things cool, if you like this podcast, you got to give us that five-star rating and subscribe. Of course, all the things, if you're thinking about MCI events, whether it's the, uh, the morgue issue, whether it's reunification, whether it's the, that like that process if you figured out something in your agency we would love to see that in the comments so find the readiness lab find disaster tough podcast when we post this share us your lessons learned and with that we'll see you for the next podcast thanks